Welcome to the Chosen Brew Beer Podcast. My name's Ian McNally, and this is the podcast where guests talk the way through the six beers that changed everything. In this episode, we cover so much what hops do to sour beer or don't, um, what yeast things look like if they are transformed into art, and just a wonderful, wonderful chat with Nick Sandery from Molly Rose Brewing who has opened up his new place in Collingwood in Wellington Street and brings a wealth of beer experience and predictably good beers as well. Let's get into it. Well, welcome, Nick, to the Chosen Brew podcast. Um, We're here sat in your very brand new, fresh brewery here. Tell us about it. Thanks for having me on, Ian. Um, well, phew, I don't know what to say. It's, it's can, can, can I, maybe can I paint the picture? Yeah, it's, absolutely. Uh, we're on Wellington Street in Collingwood. You've got good street frontage. You were sat amongst lots of boxes, some flat packs, some lots of bottle trees going on. No, 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 no. Nah. The place is stunning. It's clean. <laughs> um, the, it's glimmering. The ambiance is set. There are candles everywhere. It's lovely. <laughs> I was trying to, you know, lower expectations. And then when people actually come along when you're open, um, which you are, you opened only a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, yeah, as, very recently opened. Um, and yeah, Monday to, Monday to Wednesday and sometimes Thursday mornings too. It's very much a fully functioning brewery with, uh, yeah, tanks and bottles and boxes and forklifts and pallets everywhere. Um, and then Thursday from four, we open up, uh, and then we're open Friday from 12 and Saturday and Sunday. Tell us a little bit about your journey so far in terms of getting to this point now. I was, I was studying chemistry and, uh, I was about to maybe sign on for a PhD, uh, not because I wanted to be an academic, but because I was enjoying the study, learning a lot and, um, yeah, just really like learning. So, um... I uh, didn't quite know what I was going to do with myself. So, yeah, I thought that would be a good idea. I realized four years of life spent earning not much money and then spitting me out at the end into no career. I was like, ah, Nico, that's not a good idea, mate. I was like, all right, you got to take your science degree and go and use it in the industry and spend four years working your way up in that industry. And uh, I love... I uh, love food, always loved cooking, and I was doing a lot of cooking at the time. I was doing a little bit of home brewing, but I wasn't very good at it. Um, and I guess I saw brewing as like a, a mix of the art of cooking and the science of, uh, yeah, of chemistry and biology. So it was a combination of two of my biggest passions right at that time. And uh, literally two weeks later, I'd moved to Perth from Brisbane, and I was studying... Uh, uh, a graduate diploma in brewing. So in two weeks, you went from a PhD <laughs> dreams of to a brewing course in Perth. To a brewing course in Perth, yeah. Wow, um, it almost sounds like you're you're on the run or something. You like just packed your bags and where's Nick? Oh, he did. We don't talk about Nick anymore. <laughs> he's gone. <laughs> just shot through. So yeah, I studied brewing for a year and then got a job at Little Creatures whilst I was still there, uh, still studying. Um, and part of the brewing course was a field trip to Brisbane and Byron Bay uh, to work at Stone and Wood for a week. And after that week, I got offered a job as a brewer at Stone and Wood. And um, 
I wasn't looking for a job. I was really happy at Little Creatures um, running the packaging line and learning a whole bunch there because it was an amazing place to work and yeah, great career development and great yeah, uh, learning abilities there. Uh, but the job was great and Byron was really cool. So went across and was the fifth brewer at Stone & Wood. Wow, hmm. that is quite a trajectory yep. <laughs> to, to work for two of the most fabled um, breweries in, in Australian, modern Australian history. Uh, and t- Little Creatures, how, because those, the guys who started Little Creatures, they were very kind of like hippie, almost hippie vibes. Is th- How does that play out, you know, when you were working there? Or do, is there any kind of, is that it's tethered to their, their history in that so way? So I was there whilst the takeover from Lion happened. So it was kind of a bit down the line. Um, it was a pretty big business by then. So I didn't get any kind of hippie vibes. Got all of those in Byron, though. Um, so <laughs> I've only um, been to Byron Bay once, and uh, I walked past the shop, and it said, um, Dreamcatchers now back in stock. And I thought, you know, there must have been a rush on Dreamcatchers, and well, people are asking about them, and now they're back. <laughs> well, lucky, lucky that they're back in stock, because otherwise there would have been a lot of people having nightmares. Yeah, just dreams going yeah. nowhere, not exactly. being caught. So... You um, were then the fifth brewer at Stone and Wood. Yep, and I spent a couple of years at Stone and Wood. I uh, helped commission the new brew house uh, in Mwollumbar. Uh That was good fun. Spent a couple of years there. Then uh, my partner at the time was uh, in Melbourne. So uh, it was, we spent a bit over two years apart and it was kind of time for us to be back together again. So got a job at Holgate down in uh, Woodend. So I moved to Melbourne and yeah, worked at Holgate for a couple of years. I was the head brewer down there. And then um, kind of had dreams for what was to be Molly Rose. And so, yeah, finished up at Holgate. And um, this is where yeah, Molly Rose kind of was born. Um, I um, went traveling for four months around the world investigating beer cultures and traditions. Um, it was a great four months. I went to Japan, the States, uh, and, uh, all across Europe and UK. And... Um, really wanted to kind of investigate how beer plays a part in uh, cultures around the world. We've got a pretty young craft beer culture in Australia. Mm. Um, and, yeah, in Germany, they've got thousands of years. In Belgium, they've got thousands of years. Mm. In Japan, not so much beer, but they've got a long history with uh, different fermented alcohols. Mm. Um, so it was really cool to see how people share good food and good drinks and yeah try and bring some of that culture back to australia and so when you're working for other people and you're brewing for them and what what was the thing that made you think i actually want to have complete control of the reins and you know have my own place what was the biggest motivating kind of factor were you was that a seed that you had from when you were way back when yeah i think it was i think So, when I think back to when I moved across to Perth in the two weeks prior to moving across to Perth, I was talking uh, talking with my dad. He's given me a lot of guidance over the years. And I was talking with him about setting up a brewery here or there or everywhere and what I'd need and how I'd do it. And um, I guess I stopped thinking about that for a few years while I was learning 
beer making and then towards the end of the time at um, Holgate I started thinking about it a little bit more um, uh, yeah I've always wanted to run my own business uh, during uni I worked hospitality love serving beers at pubs love I, I love pubs in general um, and yeah I like sharing good times with people and serving them and making sure they're comfortable and happy so always wanted to have my own space that I could do that in and what is it about the pub that you love? I mean, there's a lot to like. But what is it that you you like? I'm not sure. I, I guess if I narrow it down a bit, what I've loved about what I've seen in all those different countries and what I've written about is, is the sense of hospitality and making somebody feel comfortable and making somebody feel welcome and so that they can have a home away from home. Uh, and the sense of community so like everybody is mates Um, beer halls in Germany big long tables and you see like skinny young beautiful men and women drinking beers next to big fat old men and like old ladies with grey hair and kids sitting next to them but everybody's sitting at a big long table and they're all happy to say hi and have a bit of a chat to the person next to them and oh sorry can I get out can I get in everyone's really pleased just to be there having a good time Mm. I love that community that being a part of yeah just uh, brief friendships Mm. so then the next challenge is Mm -hmm. when you make your own venue how do you create the essence of what you love about the pub in your own venue because it, it doesn't just come naturally like you you have to work at it surely and you have to you know whether it's staff training or whether it's lighting or seating or whatever it, what what are the challenges there and how have you tried to create the essence of what you like in a pub in your own venue yeah that's that's a really really hard thing it's not a tangible thing that I can put my finger on. I've I've worked hospitality. I've never run hospitality. I've never managed. It's always just been kind of a job um, and I've been the underling. I've been the one that people tell me what to do. Um, So I've hired a really great venue manager, Simon. uh, Simon Hall, who uh, was the co-owner of Easy Tiger Restaurant on Smith Street and a major, major, major um, little cafe on Smith Street as well. Um, so he's been working hospitality for a long time and he is just superb. He's hired this great set of uh, staff who are just super warm and welcoming and bright. Um, yeah, they are pretty much... Uh, they are the starter. They're the, they're the catalyst, I reckon. They kind so, of set the tone they for do. the venue and, and what people can expect. And, Definitely. And, and Definitely. In terms of beer, <laughs> you know, you, I know that when I first had a Molly Rose beer, it was a, it was, it was a, a more avant-garde end of things. Uh, and I feel that um, people thought that when you scaled up and were in the venue, that that's, it would be the main trade. But you've got some excellent pale ales and um exit saisons and what what are you trying to achieve with the beer and and how do you i was you were at the local tap house at the l stars event uh last month and 
it almost felt like some people thought you'd been typecast, almost like Ray Marr as Alf Stewart. He's like, you can't be anything else because your first beers were, you know, wild fermented um, sours that, you know, it was a surprise to see a pale ale. So what's your aim and how do you kind of build a, a stock of beers and, and what's the future as well? I have been typecast a little bit. Um, so the reason I've only brewed kind of farmhousey, uh, barrel-aged type beers is that's the only beers that I could brew and that I could reliably produce and get into the hands of people and know that they're going to be delicious. You can't barrel ferment uh, an IPA and then hand bottle it on a, on a janky little homebrew setup and then send it off around the country and think that it's going to arrive in the hands of some person who spends their good money on it in a good state. It's not going to taste good. So I knew if I did a um, sour strawberry beer, mm. I've had bottles of that that are four years old. I knew that would hold up to the rigors of um, a Frankenstein homebrew kit um, and it'll get out there and taste delicious. So now that I've got some great tanks and I'm utilizing some fantastic brew houses around Melbourne, um, I'm able to make hobby beers that I love to make. So, um, so in essence, the uh, the only reason you were brewing those beers was really because that was the, in your perception, that was the best beer that you could do with what the equipment that you had. Yep. And then, thank, <laughs> thank you for having the forethought of the, the end consumer as well, which I don't think everybody has. I think they want to brew the best beer that they can, and then that's an afterthought of how it gets in the hands of the customer and if it's been, you know, in transport or not in cold storage, all of those implications as well. Um, so thank you for that because uh-huh. I've certainly wasted <laughs> money on beers that should be in the best condition than what, what they are. I'm sure the listeners have as well. Oh, me too. That, that was, I, 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 I don't like spending good money on beer and getting it and it being a bit sad. So explain so. a little about the portfolio of beers you've got now yep. and... Which ones will kind of, are you aiming for them to be a staple? Maybe. And which ones maybe, or are you planning, you know, future beers as well that you'd like to attempt or? Yeah, so at the moment, I think I've got, I think I have actually four sour beers out of my nine beers on tap at the moment. Uh, That's not intentional. That's just the beers that I've got. Um, And then there's three saisons. Um, and then a pale ale and an IPA. Um, that's what I've got going at the moment, but I've got a lager in tank and I've got another IPA in tank and I'm about to put a, um, a hoppy dark ale in on Monday um, and those three are going to go to cans. So my first can run is going to be um, early August. So we're going to have some cans around town, which will be nice. Um, always intend to have a couple of sour beers on. I love brewing saisons. I love drinking saisons, so that you can always expect to see them in bottle and uh, on tap. Um, and yeah, I love hoppy beers, so hopefully always one or two IPAs on tap. The only ones on tap at the moment that'll uh, stick around are the pale ale and uh, the Tilly saison. So. So and, and everything else is kind of up for negotiation. Everything else is up for negotiation. Yeah, that's that's exciting, and we're we're in a really exciting location in terms of brewing. This is kind of the epicenter of um, Melbourne craft 
beer got stomping ground and fixation um craft and co uh you can help me out here <laughs> yep, the mill <laughs> the, the mill yeah the mill is just around the corner yeah, yeah. and um even bars like beer mash and and um slow beer slow beer and and j- the list goes on and good food outlets who also sell great beer absolutely and just up the road as well i think it gets missed out of a few lists because it's just across alexandra parade but clifton hill brew pub yeah. is actually i would say closer than stomping ground it's pretty close yeah, it's just that yeah. psychological difference of getting yeah. over the... Getting over Alexander yeah. Parade. It's a big road. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's a big road. And, uh, and then the Terminus is there, which is yeah, great beer absolutely. pop as well. So absolutely. it's definitely Re- worth it. Very, very close. Uh, and they make some great beers. So Yeah, so that in that knowledge, why Collingwood? And the second question is... Well, I'll ask the second question later. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Good, good call. Good interviewing on your behalf because I can't do two things at once. I, I, I couldn't take two answers and juggle at once. <laughs> well, uh, why Collingwood? Um, I think you just named off all the reasons. It's great to be a part of uh, the beer hub of Melbourne. Um, there isn't a more concentrated area of breweries in Melbourne. Sorry to Moondog and Mountain Goat and CB. We've just taken over in Collingwood. Um, yeah, it's great to be amongst all these awesome producers. And yeah, if, if you're going to go on a brewery visit in Melbourne, you'll come to Collingwood now. So it's, all our offerings are pretty different. Um, so, and we're all pretty good mates. I'm getting to know them all and yeah, sharing cups of sugar and the like. Um, yeah, and I was lucky enough to come across this warehouse. I'd applied for two or three others, not in Collingwood, uh, in reasonable reasonably similar areas but yeah this one came up and i um i went pretty hard at it because i I really like the bones of it Uh, it's a beautiful old warehouse with a lot of character um also makes it a little difficult when you try and build things because none of the walls floors or ceilings are straight um but yeah it was just just luck fortunate to come across a great spot it's one of those interesting things i find about uh the craft beer industry is that theoretically uh, when a competitor opens up close by, that's normally a threat in any other business. Whereas in craft beer, there's still that community, that neighborhood thing, that sense that, oh, thank goodness they've opened because that means I'll get more people to my venue just by trade and the way. And I suppose the craft beer consumer is promiscuous as well in their consumption. So um, I thought I'd finish that sentence. Um, That... You know that, that they will try by their nature. They want to go to two or three places in a night and not just stay in one venue. And Collingwood's perfect. <laughs> Absolutely. So let's. We're here to talk through the six beers that changed everything. Um, let's start off. Choice one. Choice one. Um, we'll take it back to my first beers. Pretty much the first beers I drank. Um, I'm South Australian originally so cooper's pale ale i grew up drinking ales which is not like um many people in australia uh so cooper's pale ale was just the standard beer that you drink you go to a party um you buy a six pack of cooper's pale ale and take it along um i really like the flavor of it 
thought it was great. Didn't think about it too much. Just it was the beer that was always available. When I reflect on, I, I still drink it regularly. When I reflect on it now, I, I get one and I go, wow, that's really delicious. It tastes kind of like a Saison. Like it's estuary, it's bananary, it's got this earthy hop on the finish, it's clean, it's crisp, it's... It, if you had that in a blind tasting and you'd never had it before, you'd go, what Belgian ale is this? It's got a, um, a real sensitivity to temperature as well. I find that I enjoy a Cooper's Pale Ale warmer mm-hmm. just because all of those flavours that you've just described are just ratchet up like massively and there's something really nice about a warm Cooper's Pale Ale (laughs) maybe I'm giving away my my heritage here but I think you might be um look I'll give it a try if you haven't (laughs) if you haven't had it maybe even just get it out the fridge you know an hour before you're about to drink it I think that's a good cool not cold Mm -hmm. um but yeah a well, yeah, it, it is an English ale strain. They've brought it. They brought it across. It's their strain from years and years and years ago. And I heard uh, Tim Cooper talk at a, um, a conference once, and he said up until like 1989, there was two strains of yeast in their culture. So, like, how do you how do you manage that? How, that's ridiculous. And they were fermenting it in Jarrah wooden fermenters. Wooden 1989. <laughs> that was not that long ago. I don't think the Coopers family are renowned for being progressive. So <laughs> no. no, that's that's a fair that's a fair call. That is a fair call. So yeah, it's it's an old English ale yeast strain, and yeah, it's just got it's just got those esters. It's got yeast forward notes, and up until recently, people that don't think about yeast driven beers as much, the farmhouse saison sour beer stuff is starting to come forward and it's starting to get looked at but for yeah the last 20 years i've been going coopers it's so good it's got all this yeast character and people are like what it's just coopers all that comes from the yeast it's so cool um if you look around uh, all these posters that are up they're all um graphic representations of yeast so um it's you've kind of got me on a little uh geek out here i um please yeah go for it (laughs) I, uh, I love yeast and what it can do in beer. And so, yeah, Cooper's not only my first beers and what I grew up drinking, but an amazing example of a yeast-driven beer. Well, I might actually put, um, if I can take a picture of some of these uh, posters, and um, while you're listening to the podcast right now, you can have a look at your device and the picture will show up of, the, of the yeast um, representations. Uh, so, yeah, Cooper's... As well, Cooper's Pale, I don't know, I can't really remember it being on the podcast before. And I thought it would be like Cooper's Sparkling, people choose, but not the Pale. And no, I can't drink sparkling, it's uh, too strong. <laughs> <laughs> and it tastes, it tastes a lot like Cooper's Pale, and I drink it like Cooper's Pale, and yeah. It makes me, it well. makes, makes me go silly. <laughs> yeah, so, so that's a great first choice and um, kind of nice to start with the beer of your beginning, really. Um, choice two. This is going to be a podcast full of pale ales. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, choice two is Little Creatures Pale Ale. So fast forward a couple of years and I'd uh, moved uh, to the Big Smoke from my country 
town in South Australia, moved to Adelaide. Um, and this was 2006, 2007. And Adelaide's not also maybe a very progressive place. Uh, but I remember being at a... Um, a like a Asian noodle, modern Asian noodle place, and ordering a little creature's pale ale, and it came out, and I, it was pretty much the same price as a Crown Lager, and it came out, and I was like, "Holy crap! This is so much better than Crown Lager. It's so good." And just those fruity hops, like amazing. Yeah, delicious pale ale, and kind of my introduction to American pale ales as it is probably for a lot of people. And what was your knowledge of, like, Little Creature? Did you just order it because it was an interesting beer or as an alternative? Did you have any knowledge at that point of... I think I think I had tasted it before once, but this is, like, my very crystal clear experience of going, yeah, I've had that before, maybe. And then I had it, and I was like, I'm definitely getting that again. That was amazing. And I think it went with the spicy food really well, and... Yeah, it was great. Little Creatures Pale is a beer that's shown up on the podcast time and again yeah. because it just is, by Aus- the history of Australian craft beer, it is the, almost a definitive epiphany beer. It really, it really is. Um, and I was not going to say it because of that reason, but then I couldn't because it, it played such a huge part in yeah, making me want to make better beer at home and drink better beer when i'm out and about yeah and when you work for little creatures um what do what were the things that you really took from them in terms of their culture in terms of how they approach making beer you know quality control all of those things what what were the learning points for you quality was huge at little creatures it was massive and that was that was my first introduction to commercial brewing and like their quality was down pat they were they were testing everything at every stage. Um, but they were a really big brewery and making lots of beer, but they were still bottle conditioning their pale ale. And there was, there's something magic about bottle conditioning. I don't know what it is. I can't explain it. Um, nobody's been able to explain it. Something magic happens, even with a hoppy beer, like Little Creatures Pale Ale, 10 days, 12 days after it's bottled, it's a, it, it finishes a bottle conditioning cycle. I know because I had to test them every day up until I got ready, which is yeah, which wasn't which was the job for the like the newbie. Um, something magic about a bottle conditioned pale ale. Uh, it didn't taste the same on keg. Doesn't taste the same on keg. A fresh bottle. Who knows? Um, so they still went to all that trouble of brewing the beer, getting the right amount of sugar in it, the right amount of yeast in it and then leaving it at the right temperature, all of their beer, they still do this, leaving it at the right temperature. So you, this means you've got, I've seen their warm rooms uh, down at Geelong. You've got like, must be hundreds of pallets of stock just waiting at 21 degrees or whatever it is, uh, waiting to be sold. And you can't move it out of that warehouse, you can't put anything else in to take up the space until it reaches its final point and you go all right that's right now we can take it out like that commitment is to quality is fantastic 
Wow, it's like a like a gestation period. Like it's yep. like a pregnancy. It's you just like got to wait, and then. But it's worth it. Yeah, yeah. It's all, yeah it pays off in the end, and yep. I suppose following on from that, then when you um, went to Stone and Woods, I mean, what was the the similarities or the differences? Because obviously, the the scale would have been slightly different, mm-hmm. and I'm kind of interested because. To my mind, I kind of think, you know, you just think most factories and industrial premises operate in fairly narrow lines. But <laughs> it's, it's like, what was the difference there in terms of, you know, the, the approach? Yeah, so we only had eight tanks when I first got to Stone and Wood. Like, it, it was very small. It was a very small place. Um, and... Whilst at Little Creatures, I think our bottling line could do 12,000 bottles an hour, something like that. I got to Stone and Wood, it was like 900 bottles an hour. Um, <laughs> There's yeah. some people who could drink as quickly as yeah, that. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And they did on the Pacific Ale. We would, have to, we would have to keg beer on Monday morning to put it on a truck that night to get it to Melbourne by Wednesday otherwise the pubs would run out like that's how tight we were every single week we'd have to keg for Melbourne keg and pack for Melbourne Monday otherwise pubs and bottle shops would run out on Friday night wow yeah because I I know that there was you know in those earlier days at Stone and Wood there were there was a lot of later working hours and a lot of uh, you know putting a decent shift in um no, I don't want to, you don't have to comment on that. <laughs> but oh, yeah, we worked hard. We worked hard. Yeah, well, that's yeah. what I meant to say. You yeah. There's hard work. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, yeah. But again, that pays off. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I learned, I learned so much, and the opportunities that were presented to me there were amazing. Um, and I wouldn't be where I am right now if it wasn't for working at Stone and Wood. Um, yeah, and you've kind of led into maybe beer number four for me there three Are we up uh, to th- we're up to three but you've gone yeah. to beer number oh, four, beer four. Oh, let's you've, do missed, beer f- you've missed number three let's do a um I, yeah we'll, we'll do a i like you i like your segue you've just missed a beer in the middle yeah <laughs> otherwise you nailed the beer number four <laughs> well let's um let's do a chosen brew first and let's do four before okay. three okay let's do four, beer number four <laughs> beer number four is pacific ale I think it's, I think it's very close to perfection in a beer, um, especially for when it was released, like 2008. There's nothing like it. There was nothing like it. They've led a category. It's an incredible beer, and it's still relevant today. It's still one of the best beers you can go to a shop and buy it off the shelf. It was it, hands down for me. If you picked, opened every bottle in the fridge, it would still probably be in my top three. To, top five it's just an amazing beer the original neeper <laughs> oh i feel dirty <laughs> that it makes got, me feel dirty it kind of is yeah, it is and it definitely is I, look it, again a beer that's been on the podcast before but for good reason because that lower percentage and the thing i pr- probably love most about the pacific l is its simplicity it feels complex in a really simple way. To date, it's still probably one of the most simple beer recipes I have ever been a brewer to make. 
we used to get homebrewers email us and come in and chat and they're like oh how many additions do you do how many of this do you do how many of that do you do i think you got to do this to the water and do this and then add this hop here and then add this malt here it i was just like fucking i'm not going to give you the recipe but you needed like take about a thousand steps out of your recipe just simpler simplify it isn't, keep it simple isn't that great news yeah. <laughs> for all the homebrewers who listen to this there's a lot to be said for simplicity but looking after the basics and Mm -hmm. looking after and taking so much care and also quality of ingredients as well i mean uh, the galaxy hop is just shines in that beer um and we were talking off mic about how hops do strange things to beers we're drinking a sour now which is the tinker the dry hop sour mm-hmm. now can you talk a little bit about what hops do and, and, and particularly in a sour um area as well i don't i don't know what they're doing sour beers that's why this, this beer is called tinker because i'm playing around with it i don't know that many people have a good grasp of how to dry hop sour beers and what's going to actually come out with different rates at different times with different hops so this is 10 grams per liter which is like that's pretty heavy it's pretty heavy that's like IPA slash getting up into Nipa range of dry hopping uh, of just one hop this is Azaka and Azaka is normally citrusy and bright and, but it's thrown this weird kind of nectarine like stone fruity character yeah well it's delicious and um, I don't know what they do to the beer but it does taste nice yeah, yeah. So it's called Tinker because I'm tinkering around, I'm playing around. And in terms of the experimental side, you obviously you want to nail certain styles, but uh, and certain beers and have them consistent. Um, how much are you using what you talk to your consumers across the bar and what you see that sells in terms of how will that shape your future at Molly Rose? Will will a, will a tail wag the dog, or do you have a certain uh, you know, idea about a fair, very you know fixed idea about what you want to create in the future, or are you open to? I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, op- consu- I'm open to having consumers drive <laughs> um, a little bit, um, but I hadn't actually thought about that. I've kind of got recipes like like the dark ale that I'm brewing next week came to me on a drive home because I was like, oh, it's winter, I should brew a dark ale. I'd like it to be hoppy, I think. And I came up with it like on my 15-minute drive home. And I yeah, don't know what it's called or what style it is. I really I can't put my finger on it. I'm going to have to brew it and then ask other people what style they think it is. Um, I'm kind of just brewing beers that I'm interested in. And I hope that people like them. I want, I want to achieve balance and approachability in all my beers so I hope that people like them uh, in terms of the brew kit that you've got now very nice shiny stainless steel what are, what's its limitations what what would you ideally want it to do that it can't quite do now I've got uh, four tanks in here I don't have a brew house so I, um, I transport wort in in a stainless steel pallet tank um so I, it's made out of stainless so I can heat treat it, sterilize it, use, utilize 
other local breweries extra space um, on their brew house. They make the work for me, pump it in there. I bring it here and throw it straight in a tank and it ferments away. Um, so many breweries around the area that um, have a limited amount of tanks and that means the brew house sits unused. So instead of me buying a brew house and then it sitting unused most of the time, I thought I'd, I'd go this way at it. In the future, I would like a brew house. That's, I guess, that's my limitation. I don't have a brewery. Um, yeah. Apart from that, mobile canning is going to be fantastic. Um, and I've got a little bottling line that I can uh, punch out the 750 mil bottles that I need to do. Sweet. <laughs> yeah, I'm really pleased. I'm really happy with the equipment I've got. And um, the more time I spend uh, working in there, the better and more efficient everything will get. And I'll slowly chip away at yeah, making it a better brewery. So, Nick, being so close to so many other influential breweries, how much do you think you'll be influenced by them? And how much maybe do you think you might influence them in terms of this kind of is a very interconnected community and particularly in Collingwood. So what would you predict would be any kind of runoff from that and cross-contamination or collaboration? Cross-contamination sounds bad. (laughs) Collaboration or, um, you know, just the fact that you might, do you ever see that you might be in a scenario where you see another brewery do something close by and you say well i'm gonna leave what i was gonna do what i had planned or i'll do something else or do you think you're just gonna sell your own ship um if someone came up with the same idea that i was thinking about doing in six months then i'd probably be like oh yeah yeah, have that that's fine i might curse a little bit and go oh that was my idea i thought about that last year but yeah, absolutely. I'd leave that. We're already. Well, I'm already borrowing equipment off of everybody in the area, and um, happy to lend out any of my crappy equipment to anybody in the area that wants to use it. Um, talking about doing events and collabs and uh, little bits and pieces with all the guys in the area already. Um, it's going to be great. We definitely keep an eye on this space for Collingwood Brewery community. Probably need a. CBC probably need a better name than that <laughs> hit up the Chosen Brew podcast if you've got a good name for the Collingwood Brewery community yeah if we can get some sort of suggestions for this like uh, collect- collective collective that's a, still uh, CBC yeah I think CBC is one of the big uh, online Facebook groups as well for craft beer so it's, yeah, you probably, know. we probably won't go there yeah, so it's, it's we've got to come up with something unique. My listeners are very creative, so Good. surely we'll get some suggestions. Good, and I'll take it to the Brands Trust. Yeah, you can have when you have your your underground meetings yes. in you know dark rooms, then we can certainly suggest <laughs> with the strange handshakes and all, all the rest. Then yeah. that could definitely uh, definitely branch out. So yeah. you kind of, I suppose, then you you are not only accepting that you will be influenced but you're actually trying to be influenced you you're wanting to you you opening the the hand to be um to take in the resources and the, the people around you yeah these guys have been here for longer than me so i um i want to be a part of their community and uh, come in and add what i can 
um, and yeah, not try and take anything away from them. Uh, we all have very different offerings. We all make different beer. We all have very different venues. Um, so I think I think we all add to each other rather than take away. Um, yeah, it's going to be great. You can uh, all coexist in peace. I think so. I think so. <laughs> I think there's room for more breweries as well. Um, definitely. Um, yeah, always room for more breweries. As a consumer, I agree. <laughs> I think that's, that's great. Now, let's do choice three. Choice number three. Um, so, Saison Dupont. Uh for a long, long time, has been my Desert Island beer. It's the beer that I can drink in any situation. Um, amazing beer, amazing balance, amazing complexity. Um, I've been drinking it as a celebration beer for as long as I can remember. So New Year's Eve, birthdays, Christmas. It's just cool to bring out, especially before... I don't know. At the moment, all my beers in 750ml bottles, so a lot of my friends and family are used to me taking them to places, but used to rock up to a place with a 750ml bottle with a cork in it, and they go, "What? what is that? Yeah, it's beer. No, it's not. Yeah, it is. It's a really good beer. Um, yeah, an amazing beer um, that without it, I wouldn't be where I am at the moment, uh, just purely from enjoyment. And drinking it and thinking about how amazing it is and how I'd love to brew beer that could come close to it. And you have a number of saisons on the on tap at the moment. Uh, what do you think it is that makes a good saison? Like in the process, how do you get close to saison de Pont or in the ballpark? I think. I don't know in the process how you necessarily need to go about it because there's so many ways to skin the Saison cat. I think the beer needs to be complex. It needs to have layers and it needs to be dry and crisp. It needs to be, yeah, complex and crisp is the two things. Um, and whether you get those layers and complexity through different yeasts and bacteria and Britannomyces or different hops and spices, uh, or oak. There's, yeah, there's so many ways to do it, but you need to be able to... Then it needs to be harmonious as well. And the Saisons that you have on at the moment, mm-hmm. uh, Vintage Saison, Ginger Saison, A Saison, <laughs> and a Breakfast Ale... Um, what are you, you know, what is the difference between in terms of character that you're looking for in, say, a vintage Saison that a regular Saison doesn't deliver? So it's pretty cool at the moment. I've got the same beer on tap, it's just two years apart. Uh, so Gertrude is the two year old version of Tilly. So and you can do a vertical tasting, you can do a vertical tasting here. That's great, and then. Tilly, when I put her, put her in bottles and bottle condition her, uh, it's, a, um, it's called Matilde. So that's my uh, core range 750ml bottle. So Matilde was the first beer I brewed. Um, it was the first Saison I brewed. Uh, it was the first beer I brewed as a core range, and I'll continue to do it. 
Um, but tapping it up on keg fresh tastes completely different to when it's been bottle conditioned for six weeks. So I, um, I had to give it a new name. Yeah, and it's, it's really cool seeing how the fresh one tastes against a two-year-old keg-aged version one, and then also when it gets into bottles, seeing how a three-week, three-month-old one tastes against a twelve-month-old tastes against a two-year-old. Um, yeah, and in saison, I'm surprised that no one has really done this before because it really lends itself to that experimental side, even just the aging because of the complexity and like you've you've really kind of chanced on something i think with, with with it was was that intentional did you see a gap in the market and go for it or you just like making saisons <laughs> i like making saisons and mathilde is inspired by another belgian beer um so it could be maybe you've touched upon my beer number five Yes, <laughs> do, do well. it's, I'm doing very well without realising. Choice yeah. five, let's yeah. do it. Um, so Orval, uh, amazing beer. Um, I love how it, you can have it fresh and it's hoppy and vibrant and bright. Or you could have it at six months and it's still got a bit of hop and it's got a bit of funk. And then at 12 months, it's just like, yeah, it's, it's, it's like dry and bright and carbonation is up. And then two years, it's like, well, that's completely different beer, but it's still really delicious. And that's kind of what my inspiration was for Mathilde in that I wanted a beer that could evolve over time. It's very much like Oval. I was from my trip when I was in Belgium. I loved how different publicans would serve a different age of Oval. It's like, no, guys, I don't care what you want. All I'm serving is six-month-old Oval, and I'm going to cellar it until it's six months old, and then you can drink it. And then the next guy over the road is like, nah, three months. And the next guy is like, eight months. That's all you get here. So they just have that passion and about beer. It's very, very cool. That, uh, is, that is really quirky isn't it and uh, something that I think a lot of my friends who aren't into beer when I relentlessly talk to them <laughs> I this idea of freshness like now I always go into a bottle shop and have a look at the date on the can or canned on or packaged on dates and freshness becomes very important but to the average consumer they they don't think beer changes or goes off or regardless of the date um so it's really interesting that you know places uh selling um orval could be so fastidious about the date and then that in turn educates the consumer as well because surely they'll only drink in a certain cafe or a place exactly that sells it that leads me on to how much education is happening here and how much kind of education you know firstly with your staff but then how do you get to a point where you're having that conversation with the consumer and wording them upon your beers and what to expect and those type of things yeah so education is really important to me um but not to the point of uh not enjoying beer um so we don't offer a, a paddle here, a tasting paddle. What we do is a guided tasting. 
Um, I'm not a huge fan of the paddle because you get five beers put in front of you or four or six or however many it is and they usually start at light and they go all the way through to strong and dark and you sit down and you taste a little bit of everyone and you get to the 10% imperial stout at the end and you go back to the 3% gold nail at the start and you go, well, that doesn't taste like much and then you start drinking them and they're in little cups and you can't smell them and they're flat and they look ugly and then you get to the fourth one and it's flat and it's warm and you go, I can't remember what that one was anyway. So we do a guided tasting here. We do six half pots um, and whether you want to stand at the bar and get a full rundown of every beer or you want to take it and sit down and enjoy your half pot, um, you bring up your glass, you grab the next one. Uh, And it is based upon which beers you enjoy as well. So our staff staff are fantastic. I'm lucky enough to have a Cicerone uh, that's come and worked with us. Um, and Lindsay. she's yep, yep, Lindsay. And she's um, upskilling all the other staff. Um, so, yeah, they, they start you on a certain beer and then take your feedback on that as to what are the next five beers that we're going to do. Um, and you can learn a, bit about, a little bit about each beer and the style if you want to, or you can just enjoy it and hear, here's this beer, you might get this note. It was made for this reason. It's this. Bam. Go out and sit down and enjoy it. So education is important, but if people just want to drink a beer and enjoy it, just let them drink a beer and enjoy it. That is perfect. I think your summary of the tasting panel was excellent. <laughs> I, got, I, I kind of really I have a love-hate relationship with the tasting panel because it's fun, like having... You know, six different beers in front of you and, and getting to try, you know, if there's a tap list with 20 beers on, you get to try six of them for a reasonable price mm. without having to commit. That's great. But I, one of the things, and it's, it's come up time and again, really, in the podcast is how some really good beers are completely lost in a tasting panel because they're subtle. They should be drank by the pint. Rather, you know, I'm thinking more um, kind of red ales that you need to build a relationship with. <laughs> you know, you need to have, you probably only get to know it on your second or third pint. Yep. Um, and, and those kind of Mika and Milder beers, which... Yep. A Hellas um, Lager, which are made to be drunk by the liter. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, uh, two beers that come to mind, uh, which are uh, at the Gabs Festival this year, was the Bad Shepherd, um, Ashwood, um, Pilsner. And the Mountain Gin um, Sour uh, from Burnley. Both of those would be nowhere on a tasting panel because they're so um, subtle and, and the appreciation of them. And so I fear that a lot of really good beers will be completely wiped out by a ta- you know, you, you And also beers which aren't great but knock your socks off on the first mouthful. But by the time you're half of the way down... You're like, yeah, that's a bit too much. So, thank you. <laughs> that was a very good summary of the taste of battle. Yeah, can you tell um, I've said that before? <laughs> <laughs> but if I'm sure there's people listening who uh, operate venues with tasting paddles, c- carry on. Yeah. But just yeah, understand the pitfalls. <laughs> no, that's fine. That's fine. But I now own my own venue and my own brewery. So, I mean, I'm going to do it the way that I like. <laughs> so... <laughs> that is, you asked why I wanted to open a brewery it was two outlaw tasting paddles <laughs> at my brewery 
No, not really. Um, but yeah, I, I want people to enjoy my beer in the best way, whether it's here or whether it's out and about. So wholesale, that seems like a, a dangerous world in many respects, going out and putting your beer in the hands of bottle shop owners or other operators who serve it fresh. Um, how do you manage that? when you're really at a crucial point of starting off and you you know I, you can tell you're passionate about getting a commitment to people getting good beer um, and as it should be appreciated and in the condition it should be it's a it's a wild west isn't it wholesale <laughs> yeah I'm, I'm lucky that I don't have a well I'm lucky that I don't have a big brewery I don't know if that's the right thing to say but I don't have a big brewery so I don't make much beer so I don't have much beer to wholesale I'm not a wholesale brewery. That's not where I make my money. Uh, that's not how I stay afloat. If I were to take this brewery and try and wholesale everything and not have the bar, um, I'd be bust. Like, So wholesale is about making sure that the beer is always fresh, getting it around the place, giving it to some of my mates who have bars and getting it around the city, sending it over Adelaide where I'm from so my mates can drink it. Like... It's 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 about getting the brand out and about and yeah sharing it with good people who have a passion for beer as well. So I really only want to work with uh, yeah good venues. Um, yeah, and I don't have much of beer to sell, so so you can keep tabs on it. Like can, I can keep tabs can... on it. I, at the moment, I deliver all the beer. Um, don't know how long that's going to be able to be sustainable for. Um, but yeah, out of each batch, look, if I do a half batch out of these tanks, I get, um, what is it, like 20, 25 kegs, and I save 10, 15 for here to pour through the bar over six weeks. That's only, yeah, 10 or 15 that I need to move around the rest of the town. Throw in a couple of festivals here and there and move solid amounts of kegs. It's maybe 10 kegs that i got to sell to my mates around town. It's really not much. So that means everybody gets one. And it's quite manageable. Mm. There's no yep. massive spreadsheets and uh, workflows that you've got to keep no. tabs on everything. So, no. uh, so I think that brings us to choice six. If we're going to stay with the um, the pale ale theme, I think it, I think it does win. I think it does win. Sierra Nevada Pale Ale is inspirational for me. Um, I mean. Ken Grossman kind of made craft beer. He invented craft beer. He wasn't the very original inventor. Other people get attributed for that. But he pretty much did. Like in 1980, released the Pale Ale, Sierra Nevada Pale. And it's the same recipe today, apparently, which is mind-blowing. It's a cracking beer. And you can get bottles and cans of it in Australia that taste like as fresh, if not fresher, than a lot of Australian Pale Ales. And like that commitment to freshness and packaging. I went to both of their breweries when I was in the States and the new one in Asheville is like Disneyland for brewers. Like I was I was crying walking through there. It was <laughs> it's the most beautiful place I've ever been. Well Steve who from Tallboy Moose, uh, he chose Sierra Nevada Pale um, many episodes back. And he said he went to the brewery and he thought that everyone was on the Kool-Aid 
he was so suspicious of everybody because everyone was so passionate and about and Sierra then, Nevada. It was, yeah, it's amazing. And then he said, after a while, he was like, "No, I'm on the Kool Aid as well." Yeah, you can't help <laughs> it. You can't help it. They are so passionate about getting their beer into the hands of consumers in the best way. They. Every single person just loves Sierra Nevada through and through. There's a thousand people in the company. There's a thousand, yep, it's ridiculous, but they all love the beer. They all love the brand. They want to, they look at the intricate science of every aspect of the beer to make sure that it gets in the hands of people. And they train all of their distributors, all of their sales reps, just massive amounts uh, and it shows like the beer is great the beer is fantastic um, and to see that and see the the Kool-Aid like you say inside the company um, it's very it, that's why I kind of just made the decision that I had to be Sierra Nevada their commitment to quality and also how much they all love their company and they love their beer. Um, it's very inspirational. It it is inspirational, not just from a beer perspective, but kind of from a a company perspective. Because so many brands like that get tired, or they get kind of they look dusty, they get left behind. And Sierra Nevada, all of these factors that you've just mentioned, seem to still put them kind of at the at the front of the race. In terms of what they do, uh, Molly Rose one day, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> nah, I wish that. Like that's very, very. It's very inspirational and aspirational to have a business that is uh, that successful, not just monetarily, but in great beer and great staff and happiness all around. Like, and he's passing it down to his, his family. Um, it's yeah, it's amazing. It's a really amazing company, and they're they're doing amazing things for the environment. They have minor minor amounts of waste, and they couldn't put in more solar and wind energy because the the state government and the electric like the power companies wouldn't let them. They are at their maximum limit for the new brewery. Everything is amazing. Like everything there is just incredible. And Ken Grossman still seems f- like for a for the size of the company, he still seems very accessible. And, a, and kind of amenable. <laughs> I, I met up with him in the bar after the tour of the Asheville facility, um, and I was like, "Ken, this is." I actually said, "This is amazing. Like, I can't believe how much everybody just loves the company, and they do so much for the company, and everybody speaks so well. Um, I don't know how you do it. Like, what's your secret?" And he just goes, "It's a lot of work," and that's <laughs> that's like that is literally it. <laughs> it takes years to become an overnight success. Yeah. That's yeah, exactly, exactly. And he's a billionaire, but he like, still seems to have his hands on the tools. He still yeah. seems to be, you know, the fact that you met him after, yeah. you know, he's still in and around the company. He could be way off and pretty absolutely. Clearly. And his son and daughter are training up to come into the company, and they're working hard. And yeah, he's still got head brewer from thirty years ago or something. So yeah. the moral of the story there is if you're starting off a brewery, you start with passion. You start with a, an adherence to quality and care about your product. And then you can, uh, only then can you dream of 
being Ken Grossman and <laughs> getting to Sierra Nevada levels. Yeah, I can't, I can't dream of that. But uh, yeah, quality and passion is important to me. So yeah, it's a, it's actually quite scary to think of having that responsibility of owning Sierra Nevada, <laughs> even being in that. Yeah. Oh, what a heavy is the head that wears the crown. Um, Shout out to Ken. Uh, <laughs> He's a listener. Yeah, I'm sure. Why? Why would he not be? <laughs> sure, when he's cleaning out the mash tun, he's he's listening with his yeah. with his earbuds in. Um, so that's our six. That's your six beers. Um, honorable mention for the ones that didn't quite make it into the six. Did you have a couple? Uh, yeah, Society Pupil. So Society in San Diego. Uh, their IPA Pupil. I walked into a dive bar and it was like I'd been wandering all around San Diego and I went through the park, went through the Museum of Man, I think it is, in San Diego, wandered around. I kind of got lost and then popped out at this place that I did want to be, went into this dive bar, it's kind of downstairs, blackened windows and it was 3 p.m. and I was starving. I hadn't had lunch. So I come into the bar really really dark and sticky and I was like oh yeah can I have a beer and they're like yeah what would you like I was like oh I don't know I'm new I'm a brewer on tour like what's what, what's your choice of the beers so it was like it was a craft beer place I'd gone to this area for this place uh, what's your pick and the bartender goes oh this one's pretty good I like this I, I'm like take it and I was like holy fuck that's really delicious that's really good thank you um, can I have that and uh yeah, uh, like a toasted sandwich. And I had three pints of it in maybe just under an hour. And on my third pint, I looked up and it was like 7.6%. <laughs> and I'd only got my sandwich like halfway through the second pint. And by the time I left, it was like quarter past four. I walk out of this place and it was dark inside. Walk out and it's bright light and there's like kids walking past. And I was oh, oh, it's so... So this beer was so deliciously hoppy and fresh and bright and drinkable that I drank three pints of it without knowing at like three o'clock on a Tuesday afternoon. And it's called Pupil. Pupil. That yeah. is such an appropriate name for that bar as well because you're dilating pupils yeah. going in. That's like, yeah, wow. It, it was the best IPA I've had in my life, I think. Wow. Uh, it hasn't been topped. I mean, I've had a lot of really good fresh IPAs at fresh from breweries, but that hadn't been, hasn't been topped. Wow. Well, that is a great honourable mention yeah. and a good story as well. Uh, any others that fits? Brewery de Cam, like um, a gurzery in Belgium. Went there on a Sunday and got served by the brewer in this back shed. It was really weird and he... Uh, tapped a whole bunch of barrels and gave us tastes out of them and then opened a 16-year-old bottle of Lambic um, and just drinking his beers with him and he'd taken over this brewery from somebody else because he wanted to keep the Lambic tradition going. And he told me that next time I come, let him know ahead of time and he'll bring his bagpipes for me and play some bagpipes. (laughs) Um, You, You know that it's a saying that uh, the definition of a gentleman is a man who knows how to play the bagpipes but doesn't. <laughs> he was he was more than willing to play his bagpipes. You find, I, I only know one person who can play the bagpipes 
and they are any occasion. It's, 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 obscene. it's just like, no, leave the bagpipes at home. Well, <laughs> he explained to me that Flemish people play bagpipes for celebrations, whereas the Scottish play them for like sad affairs. Uh, I, don't, I don't know how true that is. I, I think uh, it seems like Scottish people just play them ceremonial for money. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, all the occasions I've ever been to, they, yeah. they must be getting paid. Yeah, <laughs> so. yeah, yeah. So he, he reckons Flemish bagpipes are for celebrations and fun and beer and stuff. Yeah. And when I was there, this couple, old older couple, come in with a, like a five-litre water jug and I was like, no, no, you're not got no. They went and filled it from one of these 500-litre barrels with young lambic and apparently they come every two weeks and fill it up and they take it home and they put it in their fridge and then they drink it over the next two weeks wow I was just like mind blown that's like you wouldn't want to go on holiday with those people but they they (laughs) that is great fun isn't it it's like that is wonderful and yet they pulled some cash out the top pocket and I was like, oh, how much? And they're like, no, 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 this, that. And there was an exchange and they took home their five-litre plastic water jug full of one-year-old Lambic. That, again, like these two on, these are the best honourable mentions we've had on the show, yeah. Brew. Yeah, and his beers were cracking. They were amazing Lambics. So, really, really delicious. Uh, just that experience of being in a place where the beer's made and hanging out with the dude who's passionate about the beer. It's, it can't be beaten. No, there's a, such a... I think it's one of the big draw cards of craft beer as an industry is I can come perhaps to Molly Rose and have a chat to yourself or someone really close to what's happening and knowledgeable. There's not that many industries you know, away from beer where you can speak to the producer, the creator and enjoy their products with them in the venue and and mine them for information and so on and feed off that passion as well. Yeah, exactly. You can't go to the Big Pen factory and have a chat to the maker of Big Pens and pick one up. No, no, I can't can't think of many other industries that you can do that. Um, So a snack and the receptacle to drink the beers out of. Yeah, uh, chili edamame. Goes great with IPA. Nice. Yeah. Great and a receptacle. a receptacle. Do you have a go-to? Oh, well, while you I think like about a, oh, it, nah, the, uh, you uh, you've gone for a, a choice here of glassware, yep. which uh, at Molly Rose, which is uh, like a wine-style glass. Um, what was the kind of decision behind that? They're really nice to drink out of. Um, it's really nice to drink beer out of a really nice glass. Um, makes the beer look amazing. Um, and, yeah, it, it's a little bit different to the uh, the normal Tiku glass, but along the same lines. Um, so, yeah. It was, it was a glass that I loved and wanted to brand it mine. Well, they do. They look great, and Thank they you. certainly present the beer in a really nice fashion. Mm-hmm. So, um, so what is your choice of receptacle? Um, if I'm if I'm being honest, at the moment, after the hard slog of the last six months, I just want to go to the pub and drink a pint. Like I want a pint of beer, like a conical, yeah, 
pint, imperial pint yes. glass. Yep. Right now, I just want to go to the pub and drink two to three of those and just relax and not think about beer or breweries or uh, like drains or concrete <laughs> or yeah. Now, I know that when you open this uh, place, it was a Thursday, 4 p.m. around then, and you only got one of your permits through on the from the council on the deck. Can you tell us about, <laughs> about that? Yeah, so it opened, it was, it was fr- Friday night. We, we normally open Thursdays, but I wasn't going to be ready by Thursday. Um, and then, yeah, got the last permit about 1.30 and we opened at 6. Uh, what the was second that permit I, for? Um, I can't remember. What do you... How many permits are... I think I've, I think I've, got, I think I've got 10. 10? Ten. 10 different licenses and permits. Yep. So they're making it easy to open. Oh, it's, re- it's reasonably easy. If somebody wants to know, I can I can tell them all the ones they need to get. <laughs> yeah. That would be it a very different podcast. Yes, it's not an enjoyable podcast. That one, no, no. no. But yeah, it's been a it's been uh, an interesting journey. It's been good fun and stressful. I've learned a lot, um, and I've done a lot of things that I wouldn't have otherwise done. Um, but yeah, it's great. I'm really pleased with it, and I'm really pleased with how the venues turned out and the how the staff are running it now, and they're making it their own. Um, yeah, I'm really, really pr- pleased and proud. And I guess while I'm harping on a bit, I, I should say thank you to all my friends and family who have chipped in. I put in a lot of work, but they also put in a lot of work to help me get to where I am. Um, and yeah, to make the venue what it is today. So thank you to everybody who helped. Yeah, it's it, there's so much unseen work and unpaid work to the consumer. The venue just pops up and it's like, oh, this is a new venue. And the the enormous kind of like the iceberg, like the amount of work that goes in to get in the venue. And then you get the venue up and running and then the hard work begins. It's like there's enormous push to get it open in the first place. And then you've got a venue to run. Yeah, and I've only got three days a week to brew in. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so yeah. people can come down on uh, Thursday uh, to Thursdays Sunday. from four and then Friday through Sunday from 12. Always rotating tap list, a yep, couple of calls. Yeah, like nine to ten beers. And then there'll always be... Well, my partner is a winemaker. Callie's a winemaker. So in the near future, we'll hopefully have a couple of her wines on tap. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in summer, we might have some coffee on tap, some cold coffee on tap. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. That's great. Well, it's, it's really exciting. I always love talking to people when they've just opened because I feel like that I can come back and, you know, we'll have an update in a couple of years and, and see where, whether it's all fallen apart or whether we've gone from strength to strength. But thanks so much for talking us through your six beers that changed everything. It's yeah, thank, thank really you very lovely. much for having me. Cheers. Pleasure. So that was it. Nick Sandery from Molly Rose. Wasn't it great at the end where normally when... I ask if there's any honourable mentions for beers that it's just a couple of throwaway beers. 
in there and Nick just came out with a couple of blinding stories at the end which was superb it was so much fun to spend time with Nick and and looks like he's really embracing the scene in Collingwood and got heaps of friends and so exciting to be a consumer in that part of Melbourne so thanks so much Nick for being on the Chosen Brew Uh, a couple of interesting developments at the Chosen Brew it is looking very likely that we'll have a live episode before the year is out which I think will be so much fun and if you want me to let you know about any uh, live episodes or developments at Chosen Brew just log on to thechosenbrewau.com and you'll be prompted to just put in your email address I will not bombard you with emails because I simply don't have the time (laughs) so look I I struggle to send emails that I should send never mind additional emails on top so I won't hassle you. I'll only send you, uh, you'll be lucky to get one email a year, I would say. Uh, I'd say two would be overdoing it. So you can uh, put your email address in full confidence that I'll only tell you things that are pressing and important. Uh, You may well get an automated email back to say thanks for the contact. Uh, That's not me. That's a machine. So just do it just sign up and i'll keep you in the loop um as always if you can review the podcast that'd be fantastic uh last month the podcast thanks to you did get into australia's uh top 20 on the itunes chart in the food category because there isn't a drink category so i suppose it's the closest we can get but thanks so much for passing on the podcast through word of mouth which is obviously very powerful and make sure you leave a review wherever you get the podcast and also get in touch either through thechosenbrewau.com or you can send me an email thechosenbrewau at gmail.com or you can send me a message on instagram or twitter or any of those other things or facebook as well that's the other thing um I already have a guest lined up for the August episode, which is really exciting. And before I say goodbye, I would love you to listen to my other podcast, which is called The Wheel of Sport. It's so much fun to make and is such a good podcast. You should listen. I make it with a good friend of mine, Matt Lavery, and we've just covered so many interesting and quirky stories there's one about uh, a guy called the kaiser who spent his whole career on the books of some of brazil's top soccer teams and he never played a game in his whole career <laughs> it's an amazing story that's called the kaiser Conman. we've covered the only time john McEnroe actually got thrown out of a tennis game an english guy who decided that he wanted to enter Formula One so he built a car from scratch and managed to get on the starting grid that's the story of Peter Conyu we covered the iconic Australian Stephen Bradbury and and his rise uh, to his gold medal which is a fascinating story Um, the birth of the golf hooligan at Ryder Cup in 1999 the first black African uh, athlete to win in a marathon in Rome We covered the only time that the Oxford-Cambridge boat race ended in a draw. It's only happened once and probably will never happen again. 
the story of Mario Lemieux, the ice hockey player, which is extraordinary as well. We also did a special recently, uh, which was all to do with the big tobacco money and its influence in Formula One, which is fascinating. We covered the 1909 New South Wales Rugby, Rugby League Grand Final. I mean, I know everyone's still talking about it now from 1909. But, oh, we've got so many uh, fun episodes coming up as well that we've recorded. So, look, all I'll say to you, just give it a listen. Just choose an episode, give it a listen, see if you like it. I'll put the uh, link in the show notes so you'll just be able to click through and listen straight uh, from whatever device you're listening to this podcast on. And thanks so much for listening again. Hopefully we get to share a beer soon and I'll see you next time for another great episode and another great beer journey.